Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Six million, 12 million, those numbers do violence by abstraction. We can't even wrap our head around a number like 12 million people taken from their homes in Africa, right? Some issues are simply too big for us to fathom. Right now, we're experiencing many different emotions about the coronavirus pandemic. It's hard, if not impossible, to put the death toll into perspective. As human beings, we connect with personal stories, with individuals. And when an event of such mammoth proportions enters our lives, it's difficult for us to connect emotionally with what's going on. Sometimes we just become numb. But that's precisely why we must put events like the pandemic under the microscope. It's why today's guest is shining a spotlight on slavery, and specifically the stories of five American boys who were kidnapped and smuggled into captivity, so that we can better understand how it truly affected the people of the past, and how it's led us down the path that we're on. University of Maryland professor Richard Bell is the author of Stolen, and he's my guest today. Chapter 1. Beneath the Surface Behind many dark tales are even darker underbellies. For instance, within the atrocities of World War II were the actions of Joseph Mengele, the Angel of Death, and the deadly experiments he performed on prisoners of war. As writers, we should always look past the surface to unearth the true nuance of a story. Most people understand the concept of slavery and what it represents, but Stolen explores a considerably murkier aspect to it, if that is you can imagine it being any worse. Through the stories of these five boys, we find out about the industrial-scale human trafficking that was going on, the money laundering, the organised crime, the list is endless. I call this in the book, and I don't lean into this pun too often, a black market, um, by which I mean, yeah, this is a criminal trafficking network um, where the perpetrators specialize in kidnapping, abducting from free soil, free cities like Philadelphia, for instance, free African-Americans with the purpose of trying to sell them and enslave them at great profit, transporting them vast distances um, across America to try to sell them to people who want to buy slaves in faraway Mississippi, faraway Louisiana, faraway Alabama. And this is piggybacking on the legal slave trade, whereby um, people who own slaves in slave states like Virginia and Maryland are legally selling to slave traders who legally carry enslaved people across the southern slave states and then resell them at great profit at a markup in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. Uh, But kidnappers want a piece of that extremely profitable um, market for black people, for black bodies, for black labor. So they make a business out of kidnapping free African-Americans from northern towns and cities, laundering them, as you said, through the legal domestic slave trade, American slave trade, passing them off as legally purchased enslaved people, and then pocketing the vast profits to be made from that. This is big business, Mark, between the revolution and the civil war. 
so the the five boy it's it's a story about five young boys um but they represent so much more this is this is not just about five people it's what they represent isn't it that you're you're trying to get to the heart of yeah they represent all sorts of things of course but the the first and foremost one is is a much larger wave of free black adults and children who are kidnapped away abducted snatched from their loved ones, their family members, um, especially children snatched away from their families and parents from free cities like Philadelphia. And while this book, Stolen, focuses on the stories of five of these individuals, uh, you know, the 10 years of research I did for this book make it very clear that this happened thousands, if not tens of thousands of times in the first five, six decades of the 19th century, the decades before the American uh, civil war. So the scale of this, Mark, the scale of this epidemic of kidnapping of free black people into slavery from within the United States totally caught me off guard when I began this project. It's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I had no idea this went on on such a scale. Uh, and so I wrote this book to sort of educate myself about this. It's fascinating because, as you know, um, in series one, uh, I spoke with Professor Vince Brown. And one of the, the conversations was around the fact that in order to understand slavery, you almost have to take a different view of historical research. You can't do it at a national level. It has to be at an international um, level. So I, I think that that's been very interesting. What this book does is it goes, you know, several steps further into the dark underbelly of of what was going on and and it really is a case of th these traffickers they they saw i imagine what was a very lucrative market and wanted in didn't they that's exactly right so first of all uh, professor vincent brown at harvard university is a, is a hero of mine his work is so important and i recommend uh, to everyone listening his uh, new book uh, uh, about tacky's revolt from 1760 in jamaica but yes, Vince is absolutely right. Uh, I'm taking a uh, continental approach uh, in this book, and I'm particularly looking at the idea that perhaps the hard lines between the northern free states and the southern slave states aren't that hard at all. In fact, they're actually quite porous, uh, which means that free black people living on free soil in free northern states like Pennsylvania, and this also holds true for other free northern states like Massachusetts, New York, pretty much anywhere you care to name between uh, the revolution and the Civil War. Those free black communities, which are large and dynamic, um, the freedoms of those legally free black people are actually incredibly fragile and vulnerable because kidnappers from nearby slave states, which might only be a few dozen miles away from a city like Philadelphia, um, are marauding in the streets of these free cities, trying to drag free people across those state lines into the slave south, breaking down that perceived bright line between the free states and the slave states, between the North and the South, to try to expand slavery, to accelerate the spread of slavery into the deep, deep South, which is the region uh, in the United States which is growing fastest at this point in American history. And kidnapping is one of the reasons it's growing. One of the reasons I think that the book is so successful is that it can be quite numbing to talk about um, slavery just because of the scale. And there comes a time after which so many people have been enslaved, it's difficult to see the individual and the human being in it because the numbers are so, you know, so high, you just can't comprehend it. So taking the view of five young boys makes it, I found it suffocatingly personal at times because of what was happening to these boys. There is one moment where you talk about 
Cornelius and, and you say Cornelius has been, I think he gets to the age of 12 and he hasn't seen his parents in two years. There's something utterly heartbreaking about that, isn't there? Was that a deliberate choice? Did you want to make it as personal as possible so that we could feel the emotion of what it would be like to be trafficked? I mean, I think so many of us doing this sort of work, you do want to achieve that um, intellectual and emotional response to the work uh, we do and to the, you know, the experiences and in this case, suffering of ordinary people who had names and lives. And this is especially true when you study uh, slavery or the African-American experience, which is so poorly documented um, in the early United States. Um, so if you take the transatlantic slave trade, you know, for instance, where we think in big numbers, 6 million, 12 million, right? Uh, those numbers, uh, as one historian has written, do violence by abstraction because we can't penetrate a big number. We can't even wrap our head around a number like 12 million people taken from their homes in Africa, right? So what historians of the transatlantic slave trade has done, or what I've tried to do in my book, Stolen, is to find those few cases which are better documented, better sourced than so many others in those great large flows of migrants and to tell one life or a small number of lives in as much detail as we can um, so that readers can be reminded that we are not talking about abstractions here we're talking about human beings with uh, you know with parents with hopes uh, with dreams with character with personality and so this story because of the very unusual things that happen uh, once these five boys reach the Deep South, when from the kidnappers' points of view, things go horribly wrong, provide a source trail, a paper trail, for me to tell these boys' stories in more detail than we would be able to tell the stories of the other hundreds, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people to whom very similar things happen. So yes, that was a conscious choice to lean into telling a human scale story about five boys. And one more thing quickly, Mark, when I began this project, which is almost a decade ago now, you know, my wife and I were starting to think about planning a family. Uh, I now have two small children, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And the human stakes of what it feels like when a parent's bond with a child is threatened or when one's children are snatched from, from someone, that's come home to me since I've become a father. Um, in a way I probably couldn't have understood um, 10 years ago. So this feels desperately, achingly personal now. Chapter 2. An Educated Guess Rick's decade worth of research writing stolen is clear to see, with citations and references adorning the book. But when you're reflecting on issues of the past, the paper trail will often run dry. Not everything is documented. And as non-fiction writers, there's a very careful line that you need to tread between using educated guesses to flesh out a story and dramatising events beyond reality. It's a liminal challenge that Rick faced on many occasions, and it certainly isn't an easy thing to do. No, that's terrifying, of course, right? Uh, historians deal in facts in the known, right? Uh, we, are, we are truth tellers, I hope. But as you point out, when you're telling important stories like this, sometimes you don't have every source you wish you had. Um, you know, careful readers of this book will know that the two major sources for this book are two 1,300-word accounts. One comes from one survivor of this story, another one comes from another survivor of this story, Sam and Cornelius, respectively. But I built this whole book around those 2,600-word first-hand 
accounts. And that left a lot of places in these five boys story where I only had a couple of words from the boys themselves, sometimes literally a sentence about something I wanted to write a chapter about. And the best example of that, Mark, is the central two chapters of this book is a reconstruction of the five boys journey into the deep south from free soil in Philadelphia, where they're captured. And I only know about 100 words from the boys themselves about what that agonizing overland on foot journey of about 1200 miles was like. And so uh, I went to great lengths to try to fill in some of those gaps using other sources. Now, um, as you may be, uh, as you can imagine, those boys were not the only boys to walk those roads for the for the purposes of being sold into slavery or transported from uh, one type of slavery to another type of slavery in the case of legally trafficked um, people. So we do have other survivors' accounts of walking those roads uh, towards Louisiana slavery, towards Mississippi slavery, towards Alabama slavery. And so I used other survivors of slavery's life writings uh, when I could. Uh, I also used the writings of other people who'd experienced kidnapping, famously Solomon Northup, the author of 12 Years a Slave. He would not walk across the country. He would go on a ship um, from Washington, D.C., near where I live, Mark, to, um, to New Orleans. Uh, but he writes with great subtlety about the psychological dimensions of not knowing where you're going or fully understanding why you're going there or what's going to happen when you get there. And so I tried to think about how a eight-year-old boy how an 11-year-old boy, how a 15-year-old boy might be working through some of the same psychological torments and agonies. And then more creatively, perhaps, I was able to use a large number of written accounts published by rich European tourists who were tooling around the American South in the 1820s in fancy carriages on their way from Niagara Falls down to New Orleans on their grand vacation. But they would look out their windows of their fancy carriages on those roads in the south, on those roads in Tennessee, on the way to Natchez, on the way to New Orleans, and they would write down what they saw. Sometimes they literally saw processions of African-American men, women and children trudging towards New Orleans. Sometimes they wrote about the weather conditions. They wrote about the roads, how much mud there was, what color the soil was, what it's like when the rain comes down. And those observations of rich white people actually proved to be very useful in reconstructing the geography, uh, the climate, uh, various other things, which I think readers want to know if they're ever going to trust me to tell them about what the psychological experiences uh, of people on this journey might have been uh, like. So it was a big net I had to throw. The, the boys, particularly Sam and Cornelius, are incredibly well drawn um, and they do feel um, very real. And it's heartbreaking at times. It, it's 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 fascinating to reflect on Sam's journey as he grows older. I think by the time we finish, he's uh, he's fifteen, sixteen, isn't he? Um, as we get to the end, he is a very old beyond his years um, young man, and he clearly wants some form of revenge or recompense. Or there's a there's a there's a torrent of hatred surging through him. I I, I guess, but I also get the impression that he's he's calm and measured at the same time but i could imagine him exploding if he ever got the opportunity to do so would that is that something that you felt when you were reading him i think that that's a that's a wonderful description of uh, sam sam and cornelius are the two boys of this group of five um, from whom we have first-person accounts, so perhaps it's no surprise that they've come through most clearly uh, on the page um, when I'm trying to reconstruct how these five boys were different from one another, right? They are not 
an abstracted mass of humanity. They are five individuals with different paths. And Sam's path, as you know, Mark, is actually quite different from the other four people's path. Uh, the other four boys, Cornelius, uh, Enos, Alex, and Joe, uh, grow up in freedom in Philadelphia until they are snatched away in 1825. Uh, Sam grows up uh, uh, in slavery in nearby New Jersey, um, and at the age of, I think, 15, runs away um, from his enslaver, runs out of slavery, and runs to Philadelphia uh, because of the size of its large and dynamic free black community, thinking that he will be safe there, that he will be safe from capture, um, from a slave catcher. Uh, and his master does not come looking for him, actually. But he does fall prey to a kidnapper, completely independent of the slavery he grew up in. He is um, enslaved by a kidnapper and then joins these four other free boys on that awful journey into the South. So um, Sam's behaviors prior to the start of that odyssey into the South tell you a lot about his character, as you sort of point out, right? This is a boy, a child, 14, 15 years old, who has already gone to extraordinary lengths to fight his way out of slavery. He has uh, traveled 50 miles under his own steam, leaving his parents and at least two brothers behind him to uh, get to extricate himself from slavery and start over again in a, in a city he, where he knows no one, Philadelphia. And then to be enslaved a second time by these kidnappers, um, it's almost too much for him to bear, I think, right? So the psychological posture of opposition is so readily apparent in Sam's behaviors. And as you'll remember from the book, Mark, um, Sam will do his best to escape again a second time and a third time in the course of this uh, odyssey into slavery. And I won't spoil the outcome of this uh, for readers, but if you look at his actions, then you can get a sense of his, um, his rage and his desire to taste liberty again as quickly as possible. Cornelius is a different person with his own story, and I do try to put them in contrast to one another. Cornelius is younger, and he's also the only, only one among the four boys who can read. And that will actually play a decisive role in his own path to liberty. I wanted to spend, um, I just wanted to hang in the Deep South for a, for a while, because there was something I was not expecting from the book. And it is the thing I take away with me most often when I reflect back on the book and what you were trying to do. If we think about people like Hamilton, despite overwhelming financial incentives to take the boys, there was a large number of opposition. And at first I struggled to understand it. And then when I tried to pick beneath your own analysis, there was almost a sense that by rejecting the boys, that was going to prolong the slave trade practices that they had become accustomed to. So it was almost do one nice thing now to enable you to continue to doing what we now uh, accept as horrific things. That staggered me, um, Rick. Could we just spend a bit of time talking about that motivation? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it can get a little bit complicated in the weeds. Um, but you know, the general point, I think, is absolutely right. The, one of the things that startled me as I began my own research into this story, one of the things I could not readily explain is what you just put your finger on. Why is it that when these um, boys are presented for sale, to the type of slave owner, plantation owner in the Deep South, who on a normal day would be more than happy to buy at a suspiciously low price some black individuals he knows or suspects to have been kidnapped from freedom. 
Why doesn't that happen on this particular day? Why do then things from the kidnapper's point of view then spiral out of control and end up with some of these boys returning to freedom by the end of this book? It's because of a decision made by this um, planter, this slave owner in Mississippi called um, John Hamilton, who quickly shares his decision with a local lawyer named John Henderson and with the attorney general of um, the state of Mississippi. Um, I did not expect any white slave owners or slavery adjacent political leaders and lawyers to make decisions in the favor of or in the best interests of these enslaved uh, boys who'd been kidnapped from freedom in Philadelphia. So I wrote this book partly to explain to myself what on earth was going on in these situations. And they were rare, of course, because most um, sales succeeded. Most sales did not break down like this one did. And um, the explanation that struck me as the most compelling and plausible of all the different ones that might jump to readers' minds as they're hearing us talk about this for the first time is the idea that while uh, enslavers did buy plenty of kidnapped adults and uh, children, to be seen to do so in public, especially when northern office holders and lawyers eventually wade into this story as they do, is to be contributing to the notion that Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana are lawless places, that they are the Wild West where rules don't apply. And that is terrible public relations uh, in the 1820s, at a time when Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana need all the good press, need all the investment, all the venture capital, all the new settlers, white, black, and otherwise, um, to pour into these new territories and states as they possibly can. Um, they want to protect their right to continue to participate in the legal domestic slave trade. And one way to protect their supply of legally purchased and resold enslaved people is to be seen in public to have nothing to do with kidnappers. What they do behind the scenes is up to them, unfortunately. Uh, and so that dichotomy, the idea that we will not make this deal so that we can make many other deals in the future, does seem to be the long game, game um, that certainly political leaders, legal leaders, the attorney general, this lawyer I focus on, and to some extent, John Hamilton himself, seem to be uh, engaged in. It's actually quite chilling when you think about it, right, that you can do this good deed of listening to these boys' stories and trying to help them for the longer term reason of perhaps ensuring that you'll get to enslave hundreds and thousands of other people over the longer term. Chapter 3, Justifying Morals. There's an interesting distinction to make when reflecting on the slave trade of legality versus morality. It's been proven throughout the centuries that legal activities aren't always moral ones. And yet people often don't see it that way, or at least they turn a blind eye to questionable morals when the law is on their side. There's a scene in The Godfather where Don Corleone says he doesn't want to get into the narcotics business because he's not interested in the dirty business of drugs. How ironic. How a person or a character lives by their moral code is a fascinating area for writers, as it allows you to experiment with right and wrong, to challenge your reader, to cast a shade of doubt on their perspective of good and bad. Our ability to ignore morals for the sake of what's written in law is what allowed the slave trade to thrive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, both these, uh, you know, the enslavement of human beings is fundamentally immoral. But in America, between the Revolution and the Civil War, um, the uh, the slave trade is wholly legal. Kidnapping is not legal, uh, as we're discussing, but to buy someone else's slave 
um, from them, uh, transport them across the country and resell to a third party is, is of course, uh, legal under the terms of American race slavery. And a million African-Americans, uh, men, women, and children, are legally traded from slave states like Virginia and Maryland, and I'm in Maryland today, Mark, um, down to Mississippi, Alabama, etc. This is big business. Uh, many slave traders make their fortunes doing this awful work, which again is wholly legal. Um, many slave traders make such large amounts of money that they become philanthropists, actually, in their later years, right? They start donating some of the profits of their careers as legal slave traders to hospitals, to churches, to universities. There are colleges in the American South today where some of their original benefactors were domestic slave traders, um, right, who put their names on buildings afterwards. They are laundering their reputations to pick up that metaphor um, again, but they're certainly not breaking the law before the Civil War. And so it behooves those traders, of course, and their allies to create a bright line between themselves and kidnappers who they never want to be associated in any public imagination or discussion about the morality of trafficking, right? Because in their mind, there is legal and moral trafficking, and there is illegal and immoral trafficking, and the two should never be confused. This is a sick calculus, obviously, but this is what preserves the domestic slave trade right through the uh, opening years of the Civil War. The copy of the book that I have is the hardback. I believe the paperback is due, uh, is either just come out or about to come out. Are any differences between the two? Has anything come to light in the gap between the, the two publication dates that's included in, in the paperback version? Yeah, so the paperback is uh, due to drop in the United States on December uh, the 1st. And we should also, for the record, point out there's an audiobook and a Kindle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the paperback version, yeah, makes one small uh, change to a couple of paragraphs in the very last uh, chapter based on some new information um, that a friend of mine has shared with me from his own researches before the pandemic prevented uh, research from continuing and libraries had to close. Uh, a friend of mine found something I'd not been able to find that tells us a little bit more about what happened to one of the boys who survives this story. As you know, Mark, not all, but some of the boys survived this story. The subtitle of my book refers to an astonishing odyssey home, home being Philadelphia. And one of the boys, Sam, the guy who began his life in New Jersey, then runs to Philadelphia, then is kidnapped again, is one of the survivors of this story. And I had um, tried to track him once he returns to Philadelphia. Uh, and at, at first, that's very easy to do because Sam wants to be found. Sam wants to talk to law enforcement in Philadelphia. Sam wants to blow the whistle. You talked about his rage earlier on. Sam wants to blow the whistle on his kidnappers. He wants to name names. He wants to have his day in court. And he's a remarkably effective sort of witness for the prosecution against some of these kidnappers. And his testimony drives so much of this book as well. And it drives a manhunt for some of these kidnappers that will launch when he returns. After his testimony, he seems to disappear into the shadows of um, history. And I had uh, made the informed speculation in the hardback that maybe he goes looking uh, for his surviving family members in New Jersey, where they remain enslaved. Maybe he tries to persuade them to uh, walk out of slavery as he has done once, twice, three times in his life. Maybe uh, they make plans to go to Canada. I'm very clear with the reader that I don't know that for sure. And that there's lots of maybes and possiblys in that, that paragraph. Uh, my friend Elliot Drago um, found a court record showing that, in fact, um, Sam remains in Philadelphia. We find him in one uh, police file 10 years later 
being charged with assault and battery um, for beating up a uh, thug um, who has uh, been attacking members of the free black community in a race riot uh, in the 1830s. So it turns out that um, Sam didn't leave, that he stayed, that he tries to build a life in freedom in this city, and that he's at the forefront of free black attempts to protect themselves from the increasing what's called negrophobia of this bitterly racially divided city uh, in the 10 years after he returns. It's astonishingly prescient. And I, I think if I reflect on what is going on in the world at the moment, the fact that we are still finding things out about a topic that we're pretty certain we understood, we had a fairly good grasp on, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, as to you know where, where will this story continue to go? It, it just shows the importance of studying things that you think you understand, because there will always be, these records will continue to come out. It may take longer as we, as we exhaust you know the the paper trail but that that in itself is a fascinating find to know that actually he did he did remain in philadelphia he is continuing to to fight you know and to and to to fight the good fight of of representing him his people everything that he he stood for um where do you go next with this um rick are you continuing um on this are you working on something else at the moment I'm working on something else. It's hard to do research in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so there are certain archives I have snuck back into and others I'm desperately trying to metaphorically crack a window and get back in. So, for instance, I'm going to the Library of Congress today for the first time in eight months uh, on a very limited basis, wearing full hazmat gear as I go into the archives. Um, but yes, the project I'm working on now um, is um, set in the 1850s. It's a true story about... Um, a woman who in some ways was Rosa Parks a hundred years before Rosa Parks, a woman in um, antebellum pre-Civil War New York, 1854, uh, an African-American free woman named Elizabeth Jennings, who steps on a whites-only streetcar uh, one day and refuses to get off. She refuses to put up with the continued segregation of mass transit um, in the northern city of New York, the biggest city in America by the 1850s. And her actions, her defiance, her disobedience, her civil rights protest spawns a 10-year-long campaign right through the American Civil War in New York itself, um, where free black New Yorkers work hard uh, in a series of highly innovative daily um, public protests to try to force the desegregation of mass transit, of streetcars in New York. And again, um, their campaign is remarkably effective. It triggers um, copycat campaigns in other northern towns and cities and helps to batter Jim Crow segregation in um, northern towns and cities remarkably early. Um, we tend to think about the persistence of segregation uh, in the Deep South in places like Montgomery, Alabama, for instance, and Birmingham and Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and what they're doing in the 1960s. Uh, but it's important to know that um, free black New Yorkers were engaged in the same fight more than 100 years uh, earlier. And it's led in this case um, by a free black woman, a 24 year old woman named Elizabeth Jennings. So I want to write her story. It's amazing, isn't it? Because, you know, if you change the names of that and, and perhaps some of the locations, you could have pretty identical stories throughout the last several hundred years these issues keep coming up and we keep 
needing to remind ourselves that this is very far from being fixed. And it just, I think, to me, highlights the importance of research and, and, and telling stories about subjects that we think we understand, because if we did understand them, they wouldn't keep happening. So that's fascinating. How long before that sees um, its way into the world, Rick? How long is this pandemic going to last, Mark? You tell me. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be a while. This is a multi-year project. Stolen took me 10 years of work um, to do. You know, books like this, uh, they don't come with a manual full of ready-made sources that you just flick through, as you pointed out, right? There's a lot of digging. Uh, and in some cases, a lot of thinking, uh, uh, you know, creativity as well. Writing Stolen was one of the hardest things I've ever done, not only because of the subject matter that you're writing uh, about and grappling uh, with, but also, uh, you know, because the paper trail for this is a trail of breadcrumbs and you have to go, you have to go after it. I went to, I think, 35 different archives in 14 states um, for Stolen. And even at the end of 10 years of research, there are sentences uh, where I wish there were fewer qualifiers like likely and maybe and possibly, right? But the nature of telling certain stories about the American past, stories that many people and institutions did not want to be uh, told uh, takes a lot of time to tease uh, out. So uh, look for Elizabeth Jennings in the future, but I'm not going to put a date on it here because that would be a foolish thing to do. Wonderful. Well, I think what you encapsulated there is is everything that anybody is uh, who's ever sat in front of a blank screen or a blank sheet of paper um, understands deeply. Writing is hard. Uh, Rick Bell, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for this opportunity, Mark. A massive thank you to Professor Richard Bell for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? Without drilling down into personal accounts and stories, earth-changing events and society-breaking norms can be hard to comprehend. Make your audience care by detailing the individual struggles and experiences that take place underneath the bigger picture. Just because a story has been told many times before, it's not to say that we know everything about what went on. With the illegal trafficking of free people into the legal slave trade, we see a dark tale often left untold, highlighting the importance of revisiting and researching issues from the past. Letting your characters live by sometimes questionable moral codes allows you to play with the minds of your reader, to force them to question their beliefs on what's right and what's wrong. There are often intricate reasons why people make good decisions, and the truth might not be so virtuous. For all evil deeds, it's important to provide the character a motive. Their why is what makes their actions interesting. It's no good having an evil villain who just wants to destroy the world for no apparent reason. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Next week, we'll be hearing from Guy Gadney, CEO of Charisma.ai, a company using artificial intelligence to create character-driven narrative stories. Understanding that there is feedback, there is activity that is happening within the story that is dependent on what you do is pretty seismic, actually. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.